Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. In this episode, I had the opportunity to chat with Professor Maurice O'Sullivan. And you might remember Maurice from our previous Winter Solstice at Newgrange mini-series that we did around this time last year. If you haven't heard that yet, I really recommend checking it out. In this episode, Maurice chatted to us about Knock Row, a passage through in County Kilkenny, which, like Newgrange, has a winter solstice alignment. Maurice excavated the site in the 1990s and some of the insights here are really fascinating, it's a fantastic site. Knockrow is located in the Lingon Valley between Kilkenny and Tipperary, a borderland that's been contested today with hurling but it might go back much further and we'll chat about some of that stuff. We've actually just created a new itinerary map featuring some of my favourite places to visit around the Lingon Valley and there's a lot covering a very long span of Irish history. If you'd like to get a copy of the Lingon Valley itinerary map, we have one free for members of our tour, our new membership service, but we'll also give a copy as well to all you good listeners of Amplify Archaeology. So listen on to the end and check the show notes as well, because we'll have a link down at the bottom there, which will lead you to the place that you can get that map. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy the show. If you haven't already done so, please do subscribe and leave a review if you can. It really helps us to be found. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. And as we're at this particular time of the year, the winter solstice isn't too far away, I thought it'd be a really good opportunity to build on the last year's mini-series that we did at Newgrange and looking at the winter solstice there. And I'm delighted that Professor Maurice O'Sullivan has decided to rejoin us today. And we're going to talk about a different site, again, a passage tomb, but one that has uh, shows that winter solstice alignment as well. We're going to talk about Knockrow in Kilkenny. Maurice, you're so welcome and thanks so much for rejoining us. Thank you, Neil. Could we talk a little bit about um, the setting of Knockrow and the Lingon Valley? It's where it is roughly in the country, it's between Tipperary and Kilkenny, which is, you know, fairly contested land. Exactly, yes. It's right on the border, the southwest border of County Kilkenny. Um, in terms of towns, it's about halfway between Callan and Carrick on mm-hmm. And the nearest, I suppose, local place to it would be Wine Gap in County Kilkenny and Aheny in County Tipperary, which is just down maybe two kilometres away, actually, Aheny is. And Wine Gap is a few kilometres to the north. How did you come to be study this particular part of the country? What was it that first kind of led you down here? Well, in the uh, 1980s, um, when I was doing my graduate studies, um, I had worked at Nauth and uh, I was completing a PhD on megalithic art at the time. And about maybe late 1986 or early 1987, uh, Dr. Sean O'Neillan, who at the time was in charge of the megalithic survey, he got in touch with me and he mentioned a site down in County Kilkenny which they were working with and they were surveying and they had found megalithic art on it or there was megalithic art on it. And he asked me, would I go and take a look at it? And that's how I became interested initially. Uh, We published, he published the, uh, along with Eamon Cody, who happens to be from Kilkenny as well. And uh, uh, they they published 
a small number of passage tombs in that area and over near Galbally in County Limerick that seem to be linked by the River Shure. They were both on tributaries of the Shure. And I published a paper side by side with it on the megalithic art at, at Knockrow. So that's how it all started. Interesting. And what do you think, you know, as, as I say, it, it's an area that I know a little bit myself because it's only up the road. It's a nice local landscape for me. It's a beautiful part of the country. What do you think that make, makes the Lingon Valley itself so special archaeologically? Because in some ways it kind of reminds me a little bit of a miniature Boyne Valley. There's an awful lot of stuff from an awful lot of periods down there, isn't there? You're absolutely right, Neil. It's, it's very rich archaeologically. Um, and I suppose, yeah, both prehistoric and historical material. Um, it's a borderland, which is interesting. And I suppose the really interesting thing about it is that the, yes, it's hilly countryside in a sort of a mild sort of a way. Obviously, Schlievenamon is about 10 kilometres to the west. Uh, you know, it's the dominant mountain in the locality. You can see the Comoros to the south. But closer to home, Cargadoon uh, uh, is a hill that's just overlooking a henny just south of the site. But the really interesting landscape characteristic, I think, in the area is a sort of a, a ravine or a chasm known as the slate quarries. Mm -hmm. And it has the Lingon and other waterways running through it. And this sort of ravine is out of character with the rest of the countryside, in a sense. The rest of the countryside is relatively smooth farmland for the most part. And then you have this slash cutting through it. Um, and that's the border between Tipperary and Kilkenny today and between Leinster and Munster and a whole lot of other borders as well. And going right back into medieval and even earlier times. And I think this borderland aspect is probably a very interesting aspect of it, created in a sense by the physical landscape itself. And then, as you say, it's full of archaeology, not just passage tombs, but also some standing stones um, on Carrigadoon itself. There on the hilltop, there's a what seems to be a late Bronze Age hill fort. You have the Henny High Crosses just uh, down the road from Knockrow. Um, uh, Kilkieran High Crosses just close by as well. Kilamery to the north. Many uh, medieval castles. Uh, Kiltrassy Mott is just about maybe a kilometre to the north of Duck Row, maybe even less. And um, then various other sites along the way. So it's very rich archaeologically. It is, isn't it? And that border aspect, can we dig into that a little? Because I think it's, a, it's such an interesting subject, isn't it? Because we tend to think of, in some ways, when we think of people in prehistory in particular, we tend to, not, we tend to think of borders sometimes as perhaps quite a modern invention. Yes. But it might be much more ancient than that, don't you think? I think so. Um, you know, without getting too technical about it, the interesting thing is that Knockrow, the passage to itself, is actually situated just 50, 50 metres from the edge of the ravine. And that's the border, so to speak, the ravine itself. And um, the the... Other types of megalithic tombs in the area, portal tombs, which are very prevalent in South Kilkenny and Waterford, mm -hmm. and indeed South Carlow as well. These uh, portal tombs, they're very heavily distributed, but the distribution ends at the Lingon. They come as far west as the, as the Lingon River, 
but they stopped there as if the Lingon is some kind of a barrier as well. So there might be something in the fact that there may have been some sort of a division. Now, you know, we think, I suppose, when we think of borders, we are influenced by all that has happened historically at borders and conflict and battles and um, territories, etc. We don't know what it might have meant in ancient times, you know. Uh, Was it just, you know, a much more peaceful thing? Or was it just a barrier, natural barrier or something like that? Or even a, um, a sort of a barrier in the people's minds. You know, there may have been a special place, mm-hmm. maybe a sort of a, a an area around Shri of the Man that they would have considered very special and that they couldn't build on or something like that. I just don't know what it would have meant back then. But there is something about that barrier that uh, is very prevalent in historical times and seems to go back into prehistory. And it's interesting that the Bronze Age Hillfort happens to overlook that border as well, you know. So I, I think we should consider at least that it might actually be a very a- ancient border. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, on, on that hill thought, you know, um, looking at James O'Driscoll and, and Billy O'Brien's work, you know, dating some of them, I wonder if any, like, there was a couple of the hill thoughts, I think, in Wicklow went back into the Neolithic. Yeah. Very interesting to see if any yeah, went well, that far. The first thing I did as, you know, when I went down to Knock Row first, you know, when I was looking around the landscape, I obviously went up to the top looking for a passage to up there. There's yeah. no sign of it. Uh, I went to the top of the various other hills looking for passage tombs, you know. So there, uh, but it's interesting. It may well be Neolithic. I just don't know Neil, and it's a, mm. it's a, um, it's quite possible that some of these borders are very old because when you consider the Boyne Valley, all of the passage tombs in the Boyne Valley are actually north of the river as well. That's right. You know. And the tombs uh, themselves seem to kind of have a territorial kind of aspect. They, they make oh. statements in the landscape, there's yeah. no doubt about that, and they overlook places, you know. Yeah. The interesting thing in that regard is that the site at Nocro um, is, um, as passage tombs go, its situation is unusual in a sense, you know. It's not up high, you know. It's not in a prominent position. It's sort of down discreetly down in the side of the valley. So that you can see, for example, you can see the Cairn on Shri of the Mon very clearly from Nokro. Mm-hmm. You can see the Bon Free site very clearly from Nokro. But it's very hard to find Nokro from either of those two places, you know, That's which right. is interesting. You know, it's a, yeah. it doesn't stand out as a location, and yet it's the most special site in the area. It, yeah, that's that's very true because, of course, Sleevenamon itself seems much like Knockeray in some ways in Sligo. Sleevenamon seems to be topped by, well, it's topped by a large kern, which yeah. I'd say we were assuming covers a passage too. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah I, And that's very you, visible from a long way, but you're right, Knockeray is kind of... Yeah, and the interesting thing about the, the one on Shri of Naman then, as you know, we've often mentioned, is that there is that natural rock formation under the cairn right. facing out towards the east that makes it actually look like a doorway. So, yes. yeah. you know, it is natural, but you there's a sort of, um, you know, you, you get the impression it's almost an entrance. Mm. And I suspect that wouldn't have been lost on the builders either. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't. Yeah, that's the thing. the The use and 
reflection of natural places like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. So interesting. And of course, there's a lot of legend then going with these places, you know, and uh, legends are how we explain things that are difficult to explain, you know, we, we try to make sense of them. And the legends may not have been the same in the Stone Age, but you can be sure they had legends as well to try to explain some of these places. And they probably peopled them with otherworldly figures or with ancestors or something like that in their own minds. Absolutely, no, it's so interesting. And going to the actual um, excavation itself, so you you were told about the site and you went down to visit as part of that kind of um, yeah. thing. So you had a very good idea it was probably a passage tomb before you put a spade near it, I suppose. Uh, what led to the decision to to excavate and, and what was the kind of the question, I suppose, that you were hoping to ask? Yeah. Um, I remember well, actually, how that came about. Um, it was very clear once I saw myself the megalithic artists, like this was clearly in the passage tomb tradition, so there was no doubt about that. The West Tomb was very visible. It stood out. You could see it was a passage tomb. Uh, the Cairn, it was a circular type of monument, you know. The East Tomb was buried in the Cairn and half under the wall of the laneway, so you couldn't really make out. You knew there was something there, but it was difficult to know what was there. Um, but I remember uh, once, you know, the um, site and the artwork got published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland, in 1987, um, I remember George Ogwood coming to me. Uh, George, who just died a few year, weeks ago, um, he was um, he was excavating at Douth, obviously. And George suggested to me that it would be a good idea to excavate Nokro on the basis that there was a lot of controversy about the dating in the Boyne Valley at that time and the dating in the west of Ireland, at Carramore in particular. Mm. And he felt if some site outside, away from all of that, were excavated and just see what the dating was there. there. That was really what he mentioned to me at the time. Mm. And it happened to suit myself as well. I was interested in, you know, just taking a look at the site. And I was very much encouraged by Professor Michael Herity as well at the time, who also had an interest in passage tombs. So that's really how it started. I applied then to the Royal Irish Academy for an excavation grant, which they kindly provided for four or five weeks, a sort of a preliminary start, which we undertook. I remember we went there maybe in the last week of May in 1990, and we were there for about five weeks. Professor Tyga O'Keefe today, who's in UCD today, Susie Clem, who's a, an archaeologist in Austria, and... Um, uh, two people, uh, two others, sort of Pauline uh, Garvey, who is now lecturing in Maynooth, and Amy Harris. That was our team, plus two local lads. <laughs> yes, yeah, as we started out. And, uh, and we began then by excavating, you know, obviously we had to try to come to understand, make sense of the place initially, you know. So um, some local people, uh, Tom... Morrissey, whose family owned, you know, he owned the land the site was on, and a, a neighbour called Sean Power, mm -hmm. they very kindly cut the trees off the site. Well, I didn't know this happened until I went down and everything was ready for us. They had cut the trees and the shrubbery off the site. So we decided to begin by trying to make sense of the fact that what was unusual about Knock Row at first sight was that it seemed to be built on some sort of a platform. And we wanted to know 
what was that platform? You know, so we began by excavating the southern edge. I deliberately picked a place that was well away from the chambers and so on, so we'd just focus on the platform and the cairn. That was that first season. It started from there. And how many seasons did it run to? Um, we excavated 1990, 91, 94, 95, and then we went back in 2010 for a two-week excavation linked with the conservation of the site by the Office of Public Works. Fantastic. It's funny sometimes in archaeology, isn't it? You start to pull a little bit of a thread and then the next thing you know you've got... It becomes something, exactly, it just goes yeah. on and on, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's it for sure. And... Um, how did you know from that first kind of visit down to the site to return in each of those years how was your kind of interpretation or understanding of the monument changing did it throw up many surprises i certainly did yes it yeah. um, i suppose when i saw the megalithic art i realized there was something special here because one or two of the decorated stones one of them in particular looked like a special stone at Nauth and looked very like uh, some of the megalithic art from Gavrinus, a famous decorated site in Brittany. And I was sort of saying, in my own mind, I was trying to think, of, is there some sort of a linkage here, you know, or something? Is, is it on the way between the two or something? Uh, but as it developed, what I began to realise was, first of all, um, the Salsus alignment uh, came to light, you know, we'll come back to that. Um, but uh, then, um, as we worked, we began to realize that um, it was a lot richer as a site than I had initially thought. And I remember it began with a visit by a geologist called Willie Warren from the Geological Survey, Dr. Willie Warren. And I asked Willie to come down and look at the stones uh, at the time. And when the day he came to visit the site, he was walking around. And his eye lit on just one stone just lying beside the West Tomb, in front of the West Tomb. And he said, where did that come from? And I said, well, it's just lying there, you know. He says, that's very unusual stone. He said, that's granite. I said, oh, yeah, it's granite, you know. But he says, it's the only piece of granite on the site, you know. But not only that, he said, it's not local granite. This is Galway granite. Wow. So it's, you know what I mean? So that's when I began to realize, and then we began to find gradually other things began to emerge. Mm -hmm. And we realized that the use of stone at the site is very significant. And then, of course, at the same time it was emerging that the same thing was happening in the Boyne Valley, that the use of stone there was significant. Then I realized that there was the same significance, so to speak, that particular types of stone were tending to turn up in the same place at Knock Row as they were turning up in the Boyne Valley. Um, and then it emerged later through work by a PhD student, um, Andrea Waters. She was a graduate student in UCD and she did some work with me. Um, and she uh, began, she discovered that all of the stone that was used at Nocro, with some help from, you know, one or two other people who were more experienced in geology, she uh, realized that all the stone that's used at Dr. Roy is to be found locally. Uh, oh. And uh, Dr. Steve Mandel has become involved with this as well. That was also, as you know, involved in geology as well as archaeology. And um, the stone is all to be found within two or three kilometers of the site. The Grey Wacky, which is the green stone, the famous green sandstone that's heavily decorated. In the case of Knock Road, that's found 
just up the river Lingon, there's actually, it's, I think, one bridge up from the Lingon. And uh, in the Boyne Valley, the same stone is used, but they had to travel all over the country to find it, you know. So mm. famously, they think some of the stones came from Clotterhead, some of the stone came from Wicklow or wherever, you know. So they had to travel at Knockross, all found locally because of the peculiar geology of the locality. So that's how the Galway granite. Yeah. So it, was it like a glacial kind of thing, do you think? It's, it seems it's some sort of a fault line um, okay. that exists in the area, you know, that um, there's a meeting of different layers. Um, I can't actually remember precisely, you know, but the... Um, the the, the grey wacky, this green sandstone, is basically spreads from Slieve the Mon down along into the Lingon Valley. And it sits on top then of other, of old red sandstone. And the old red sandstone, a lot of the stone that's used at Duck Row comes from the old red sandstone layers. Mm. And there's, that's probably why you have the, the state quarries ravine there as well you know i'm not a geologist so i'd leave that to other people you know <laughs> oh, no. but it's very interesting that these people back in the stone age seems to have known whether instinctively or by their detailed local knowledge or understanding of stone they knew what i'm trying to learn for the last 30 years you know which is very interesting um the bond free site which is visible from knock Row, a couple of kilometers to the southeast that has a stone outcrop just about 100 metres, I think 80 metres from it. Very distinctive stone outcrop that actually looks like another passage zone when you're actually standing at the Bond Free site. Mm. But it's actually just a stone outcrop. Mm. I was very disappointed to discover it's a different type of stone than what's found in the tomb. So therefore, you know, that link didn't work. But then it turns out that the stone that's used in the tomb, the red sandstone, you know, the types of stone that's used in the tomb at Bond Free, that's actually found just beside this uh, uh, rock outcrop. And the geologist who told me that, he went down the field and he actually started finding some of these stones down cropping up, you know, coming out of the side of the slope. He knew that they would be found there. And obviously, the Stone Age people also knew it. Yeah, that's very interesting. Do you know that kind of rings another bell, though? Because in uh, a, a previous ep episode recently, I had the chance to talk to Professor Roger Stalley about yeah. the crosses. Yeah. And we were, you know, of course, the crosses in the Ossery series, as they call it, the Henny and Kilkiran and, and Calamary being such a distinctive one. And, and he's, he was suggesting that you tend to get these groups of crosses and it's not so much that that's a particularly sacred place in some ways, although it would be, but because that's where the quarry is, that's where the good stone is, if you like. Yeah. Fair um, point, yes. Yeah, yeah so it's yeah. interesting to, to think about that with the Neolithic. And the excavation, you know, it's such an interesting um, site in that it has those twin passageways. Yeah. Uh, did they find that they dated from different periods? It was one particularly earlier than another, or was there quite a lot of overlap? Do you know of use? Well, Neil, you're asking the first class honor question now. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's yeah, it's tricky. Um, okay. One of the questions we hope there's a program of radiocarbon dating, you know, that we're currently just setting out on, yeah. uh, helped by the academy, um, that we hope might throw some light on that. I don't know if it will, but there, there are certain hints, you know, the East tomb 
seems to be buried deeper in the cairn than the West Tomb. Mm-hmm. Um, and it always intrigued me that there's no outer passageway in the East Tomb. You know, there's no passage linking it to the curb, you know, that you normally find in a passage tomb. Mm-hmm. And uh, that has always intrigued We also got little slight signs that uh, underneath the cairn in the northwest quadrant of sort of little arcs of stones as if there might have been something, you know, something else going on. Mm. And um, re-looking at the area around the east tomb, there seems to be have been some sort of a facade in the cairn there where the current entrance to the east tomb is, which is not the edge of the cairn, which is not where the curved stones are. So there is a suggestion that there might be an earlier cairn. And I have to be honest that um, I'm given more confidence of this by what has turned up at other sites, like Nauth, for example, where there seems to have been an expansion of the tomb. Yeah. So if I were to make a guess, and this is really speculating now, you know, informed speculation, I suppose, I suspect you might have had the East Tomb there first. Mm-hmm. And then the site was elaborated with the East Tomb being incorporated into it. And the site was elaborated with the West Tomb in mind. You know, that because the, the site as it is today seems, the West Tomb seems to be the one that's really integrated into the whole thing really well with that very nice facade and so on in front of it. Yes. And then in turning. So I sus- if you were to put me to the pit of my collar, that's what I would suggest. Yeah. <laughs> and the West Tomb is a bit more elaborate as well. It's more it? elaborate. It, it also has the finer artwork. Yeah. yeah. And the other interesting thing is that in the West Tomb, there seems to be a lot more burial there, even though there was a lot of burial in the East Tomb as well. There was a lot more in the West Tomb. Mm-hmm. And amongst the finds in the West Tomb, there is we're found we've been finding fragments of a large decorated pin, an antler pin. Mm-hmm. And the only other place where that has occurred is at North, North and at Fornox, the only other two places. Okay. So it's a, again, it highlights, I suppose, the fact that Nokro is a, a prestigious site in the Irish Passage Tomb context. Absolutely. And can, we, can we talk a little bit about the burials? Uh, yeah. and the, were they all cremations? Did you have a mix of burnt and unburnt bones? There are some unburnt material, but it's overwhelmingly overwhelmingly cremation. And um, we have been working on this over the past several months in UCD. Dr. Johnny Geber from uh, University uh, from Edinburgh University has been working through it. He's a specialist on cremated bone. Uh, he's done some really interesting stuff with it. He's about a third of the way through it at the moment. Um, Patricia Lynch did a lot of work on this previously for us as well. But uh, we've been weighing the bone and I was astounded. I knew we had a lot of cremated bone, but I was astounded when it's all dried and cleaned and weighed. It comes to 240 kilograms which is just short of a quarter of a ton of cremated bone. That's incredible. Which is an enormous, that's three times what was at Nauth, covering all the tombs at Nauth. And and all, like, you know, and Johnny was involved in this project as well. They had the opportunity to talk to some of the project team on, you know, they did a reappraisal of McAllister's work at Karakil. That's right. Revealing things like, um, you know, butchery or dismemberment and, and and things. It's incredible to think about the process of uh, it, how somebody ends up in one of these passage tombs. And, exactly, the journey they make, yes, yes. 
Um, this will be particularly tricky with Knock Row because through the different vicissitudes that the site has been through, uh, Johnny has found this with the cremated bone, and we've also found with the, with the bone artifacts, everything is highly fragmented. Um, he has found a far higher degree of fragmentation than he experienced at Karakil when he was examining that. Okay. He wasn't sure whether that was due to the fact that at Karakil they might have just collected the larger pieces, whereas at Nogro we, you know, sort of far more thorough in what we collected. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it may be also due to fragmentation because the artifacts are very heavily fragmented as well. The uh, bone artifacts, so, and indeed the antler artifacts as well. So I suspect it's been through a lot, the site has. Yeah, and on the other types of artifacts, as well as kind of human remains and the megalithic art, uh, were there many other types of artifacts that you found? During the well, in the East Tomb, in the north recess of the East Tomb, there was a a Karakil ball, which had obviously been intact once upon a time, mm -hmm. but obviously the site had collapsed on it, so it was just flattened and, you know, uh, scattered. But, um, so there was a Karakil ball there, and then, this is the classic passage tomb ball, as you know, mm -hmm. and then there was also, um, uh, there were a lot of, you know, the standard passage tomb finds, um, beads, pendants, um, bones made from usually the bones of sheep or sorry pins made from the bones of sheep antler pins um and uh, some flint obviously as well you know some which have been looked at by dr uh, professor graham warren from ucd yeah. so yeah quite a collection of material yeah. uh, the only way of counting how many pins we have really is to count the number of pin heads and pin points we have you know <laughs> because they're all in fragments yeah, yeah. and uh, Tara Clark who who worked, were delighted to have working with us here uh, about it she did a bit of a study didn't she on the experimental they did a fascinating study and um, you know um, yeah Tara found that um she examined these pins, these bone pins, did a wonderful job. I was really impressed with it. Mm -hmm. um, she took, she she got the bones for a butcher and took them through the entire process, experimenting all the way along, at, you know, trying different ways of doing it to, to actually arrive at what we ended up with as the end product and came up with some information that has, is highly valuable, I think, to archaeologists. Obviously, you know, it needs to be maybe put out there for others to look at it as well, because it will be nuanced, I suppose, that's the nature of research. But it's a hugely pioneering piece of work. And she found essentially that these pins, first of all, I had noticed at the Mound of the Hostages and the Hill of Tara that the pins there, they all seem to have been snapped, broken, you know. And they weren't broken at the most obvious point, the weak point on the, you know, they, they seemed to have been snapped somewhere else. And I remember at the time wondering if that was, you know, the way they were used, you know, on a piece of garment or something and whatever strain they came under that they would have snapped. And Tara then, when she looked at um, the ones from the Mount, from Nokro, she looked at them in detail then after I had done this work years ago. And she found also that the ones that Nokro were snapped, as I had noticed myself. But I had noticed that the ones that Tara were, the Mount of the Hostages, were all snapped in one place. And 
Tara then doing her work on the Nakro stuff found that they also were snapped in one place, but it was a different place. Okay. And slightly different place. And the only conclusion, I think, the only explanation for that is probably that one person did all the snapping, so to speak, at one site. <laughs> you know, that um, someone who had, it was just their habit of the way they broke it, you know. It makes you think of somebody coordinating a ceremony, like a sort of a, a priest or something. Something like that, yeah. And the other aspect of that then is that um, the... Tara also found that had these gone into a pyre with, you know, and burned with a body or something like that, they would have been obliterated. They wouldn't have survived for us to see them. Um, and the only way they could have come about to be the way they are is if they had gone into the hot ashes afterwards. Yeah. Been charred rather than completely, you know, um, burnt and created. So... That suggests exactly what you were saying, some sort of ceremony after the burial or something like that as part of the journey you know, into the tomb somewhere along the way. I, like, I, I'm sure kind of this is uh, a working theory out there, but I'd always kind of thought about, you know, because pins are such a such a, an associated thing with passage tombs, aren't they? And I always wondered that we know that there's kind of token amounts of people being brought up into these passage tombs that yes it's you know we're only getting a small amount of uh, an individual if you like i always kind of pictured them being carried there in a small bag in a way yeah. and i wondered did the pin seal the bag and the process was that you know perhaps that uh, yeah it's time. also possible and i also think um i think this is what the carakeel bowls are doing as well uh, you yes. know that um the uh, Karakil bowls are very interesting because earlier in the Neolithic, they were producing really high-grade pottery, some beautifully made pots, you know. Mm -hmm. But Karakil pottery is not particularly, you know, it's not spectacular as pottery, so to speak. And it seems to have been that maybe what was, what was more important was the makeup, the fabric of the pot, you know, what they used. And when you think of it, if they were drawing stones from particular places to make the tombs, who's to say that the making of the pottery didn't have the same sort of thinking behind it, that it had to contain certain things as well. Yeah. And the it's interesting that um, at the Mount of the Hostages, again, uh, there were three uh, pottery vessels found there. One of them was in bits because it was inside in the tomb, so it would have been, you know, with people in and out of the tomb, obviously it was flattened. Um, so much so that some people have thought that the breaking of these pottery vessels was deliberate because they're always broken. But if you imagine people going in and out of these tombs, and Karakil pots are fragile by their nature anyway. So it's interesting then that the a second one of these pots at the bottom of the hostage was was turned over on its side, so it was in amongst the cremation and turned on its side, so to speak. So that wasn't much good to us. But the third one was sitting on top of the cremation uh, in one of the recesses beside the tomb, you know, one of those little sort of cysts or kiss they had outside, the little box they had outside the tomb. Mm -hmm. And it was sitting on top of the cremation and itself was full of cremation. And I think it makes me think that maybe what was going on with these Karakil pots is that they were used. In other words, the latest burial to go in was in the Karakil pot, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and 
I, I just imagine that I could be wrong, you know. They they played a part, so to speak, in the ceremony of carrying in the the burial, the cremated bone. I suspect, That's not true. carrying it from sixty miles away now, but just that last little bit of the journey into the tomb, and you know. Yeah, no, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because with something like a passage tomb, you know, it, it, nothing of a contemporary period with when the tomb was in use. It was in there accidentally, in a sense, you know, yeah. such an important place that you imagine there was yeah. meaning. But it, it's hard not to see meaning in everything. In there. It, That's it, right. Yeah. You know, and in fact, there were incredibly tidy people. The passage stone builders. You you get nothing in there that's accidental. You know, yes. everything seems to be very deliberate and symbolic, mm -hmm. from the artwork to the building, to the material that's left in there. Absolutely. And looking at that artwork um Marish, how did you know you mentioned it had parallels the with with um uh, stuff in Brittany and, and such how did it kind of compare generally with the Boyne Valley artwork was there a lot of kind of similar depictions that you would see in the other tombs in the Boyne Valley which would be more yeah if if you had no nothing else except the artwork and you were trying to think of other sites in Ireland. The place that would have come obviously to mind when you looked at the Knockroll material in the West Tomb specifically and on one or two of the curbstones was the Wine Valley. There's no doubt about that. Apart from anything else, um, uh, the number of decorated curbstones at Knockroll, it would be paralleled only in the three big sites of the Wine Valley. Okay. And the artwork in the West Tomb was very like the Boyne Valley. Now there were there are also oddities in the Knockrow site. Um, uh, for a start, um, in the West Tomb, there are at one point on your way into the tomb, there are two orthostats facing each other, and they have both have they're both decorated with cut marks. Some an interesting kind of array of cut marks on both of them. And the interesting thing is where that also occurs is at the entrance to Cairn T at Knock at Lockrew. So you get parallels with other places as well, you know. A similar thing happens, by the way, at um, one of the sites down, uh, is it Romeral or one of those sites down the south of Spain, you know. So it's kind of, it's, it seems to be a widespread uh, sort of an idea of sort of a little yeah. idiom or whatever it is. But that aside, uh, the other eccentricity at Knockrow is that the East Tomb has about 10 decorated stones in it. And very unusually for a passage tomb site, um, even though there are about 10 decorated stones, there's only one motif that keeps recurring, and that's a sort of a circle or an oval. Not very prepossessing, just small, and usually in a very small area of the stone, you know, almost, and very lightly carved as well. So it's not very distinctive, you know. Perhaps it was actually, you know, um, maybe more exposed than what was in the West Tomb or something like that initially. But the point is that it's nothing like the elaboration you get in the West Tomb. Yeah. And it's this recurring of the same motif, almost like rock art, you know, that um, uh, I, I don't know what the explanation for that is. It, it's a very interesting one. And even the contrast between the two. James, yeah, very it, different, yes. Such a different kind of influence. And, you know, I, I suppose looking from this perspective now and looking back on the excavations, you know, how did the excavation in Nocro change your perception of passage tombs? Has it had a kind of 
That's it. Uh, you know, I can't think of that many um, other tombs that have the kind of two uh, passageways in that sense, apart from some of these big mega tombs that we yes. mentioned, like yeah. and so on. And it's not that bigger tomb by itself, is it? There are kind of bigger things. No, it, it would have been. You know, I I didn't expect it. It would become. It would be as important as it has turned out to be. You know, when yeah. I was starting out. I mean, the obvious um, parallel I had in mind was the Baltic Glass Hill site, where you have two or three chambers in the tomb, you know? Yes. And obviously, Baltic Glass Hill is somewhere roughly halfway between Knockrow and the Boyne Valley. Mm-hmm. And in fact, would have been the furthest south decorated site before the Knockrow came to site, you know, before Knockrow came to attention. There is a decorated stone from Cape Clear, you know? But, uh, the, the, otherwise... Um, now Crow would be the furthest south. So I suppose in terms of changing perception, um, one of the things I think that would be interesting is that we have all completely forgotten, you see, that point I made at the start. We've both forgotten it, that the original idea was to check out the chronology between Nocrow and and mm-hmm. and Carrokeel. But that's been answered in other ways now. So in a way, that's not the key issue anymore, you know. I think the main thing about Doc Rose, it demonstrates that um, pastimes can occur in any part of the countryside. Uh, we don't have to look for them, you know, in that line from Meath over to Sligo and north of that. Um, it wouldn't have been realised that there are pastimes in the south. And of course, since then, um, through Michael Connolly's work, especially in the around Tralee and County Kerry, uh, more have come to light. And of course, the site on the foreshore, um, published by Elizabeth Shee Tuhig and someone else I can't remember at the time, a few some years ago, you know. So there are other sites emerging in the south. And it's, I suppose, bringing out the fact that you have a very interesting megalithic story in the south of Ireland, so to speak. And Sean O'Neillan, in that quite informative way he had, way back in 1983, he published a paper in the Journal of the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland in which he simply published, it was a paper on portal tombs, but he just published a map with it, made no comment on the map. And it showed the portal tombs in the southeast of Ireland, alongside all of the other Neolithic um, ceremonial monuments of the era, you know, uh, uh, passage tombs, court cairns, um, and what he called late Neolithic Linkerstone burials, but obviously they're not late Neolithic. We know they actually are from around 3,600 or thereabouts BC. What came out very strongly in that was the link with the river valleys for me, you know, and it shows that there's a very rich uh, story to be told, and it comes on to something else which I think is interesting. Um, People have focused a lot on the development of certain types of study in the 19th and early 20th century, that you can actually draw a correlation between the distribution maps of certain types of monuments and artifacts, a correlation between that and the where there were railway lines, because this is how people traveled, you know, <laughs> accessibility. Yes. And it's very interesting that Knockrow is in a, a secluded part of the countryside in many ways, you know, um, that no one really looked at the area very much. You know, it's interesting that, for example, the, of course, you had the Kilkenny Archaeological Society, you know, 
and you had Canon Carrigan at the beginning of the 20th century, and he actually had a description of Knockrow, but it still seemed to escape attention. And I often wonder, is it because it fell halfway between University College Dublin and University College Cork, and that, you know, that somehow it just wasn't noticed, so to speak, you know, even though people published it. That, that's yeah. it. It's so funny when you you see these kind of things that somehow slip through the. I often think that of the Dublin Mountains, that yeah. it's kind of too close to UCD in a way. Precisely. <laughs> yeah. So, exactly. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of interesting stories up there. But yeah, it, it's it is kind of. I, I think when people before your work, I think when people thought about the heritage of that landscape, there it was very much dominated by the story of the high crosses. And, and their importance, you know, and it, yeah. but it was in the local kind of uh, consciousness, wasn't yeah. it? I think at the last one you mentioned um, when we were talking before the last winter solstice around the stand, yeah, year, yeah. Um, you mentioned that the locals used to uh, include knockroll in the rounds when they were going between all the graveyards. That's right, exactly. Uh, it was in the local consciousness and. Yeah. Before, even before that, um, it was there as a sort of, there was a lot of folklore around it, you know. Yeah. Um, it was known as the Devil's Altar, uh, okay. it, which is interesting. And um, the children were kind of warned not to be, you know, not to hang around there, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it was seen with a certain amount of, you know, fear. Just, it was part of all traditions about, you um, about respecting and being careful of these places as well, you know, uh, you know, there's a similar line of stories around people who cut trees off earthworks and things like that. You know that the horses would die and things like that. You know, yeah. so it was respected locally. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it just didn't enter the national consciousness for some reason. It's interesting that uh, you mentioned the high crosses also. See, they were also discovered by someone who wasn't from the locality, when you think of it. Um, it was, uh, it was uh, Francois Henri, who happened to be a student who came over on holidays to County Tipperary, and she and a friend would go out cycling and so on. And she encountered these crosses, and it was she brought them very much to prominence as well, you know, afterwards. Yeah. So it's, I suppose it's someone that suddenly realises there's a richness here, you know, that um, is always taken for granted, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's it. I never heard of the Devil's Altar thing. I, I, I knew it was called the Cashel, wasn't it, or something yeah. as well in more recent years? Well, I think I know why it was called the Devil's Altar. They, it's still there today, even in the reconstructed state, that one of the capstones of the West Tomb had fallen, half fallen off and was left lying against the back of a curbstone on the facade. So it's lying at a sort of an oblique angle. Mm -hmm. And um, when the sun hits that in the right way, or in, as it happens, if the frost sits the right way on it, the white frost, which is how I noticed it, I was down there one day and uh, the frost was on it. And I suddenly noticed that there was actually megalithic art on that stone in the form of lines of views, you know, a parallel, two double-lined views, you know. I suddenly realised it looks like horses' hooves. Okay. Hence the, you know, I assume that might be linked with the devil's altar idea, you know. Yeah. Because, um, you know, you often get that idea of the devil that it either has goats or horses' hooves, you know. Yeah. No, yeah. that's it. And looking at the way they kind of, I, I suppose, you know, 
thinking about the site in terms of, you know, the, the thing that people would know perhaps most about it who haven't visited it yet is that it does share with Newgrange the midwinter solstice uh, alignment. Yes. Uh, is this the only one that actually aligns to both the rising and the setting? So, it's the only one I know of, and no one has ever mentioned another one to me. I've you know, <laughs> mentioned it a few times, you know, and I've asked around. Yeah. No one has mentioned any other one to me, you know. Yeah. Um, the I just don't know of any other one, Neil, and uh, but certainly it's the only one in Ireland, as far as I know. Yeah, I, we we touched on it a little in the last time. You know, the solstice. What do you think that? meant do you think it was very much a kind of agricultural kind of practical kind of thing or, or how do you think people in the past may have seen an event like this yeah um i suppose it's the usual story that um um it's a modern thing the separation of the practical from the spiritual so to speak you know this thing of the rational and the you know, the other esoteric sides of life, whatever, you know. Yeah. But in fact, people haven't always seen, and not all cultures see life that way, you know. No, um, no. It certainly very much comes from the uh, sort of a Greek sort of thing, you know, that um, the idea that, uh, uh, the you know, that we're separated, and we, you know, it's either practical or it's something else symbolic. But in fact, the two can go hand in hand, really, you know. And I do think probably the agricultural side is there. I think the cycle of the year is very strong. I think that um, it's probably more deep-rooted than just agriculture. Because if you, uh, if you look at, the, at the, um, the antler, what are antler bone doing in passage Why are they nowhere else, but they're in passage all the time? Uh, or sorry, not bone, but antler, from, you know, deer antler. Yeah, and they appear to be where they're rec- where I- they're identifiable. They seem to be red deer antler. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is that that's the only evidence at that particular time. Um, Dr. Ruth Carden, who has examined red deer, she tells me that um, there would have been very few red deer in the country. There weren't enough of them to make a kind of a an impact on the landscape otherwise than in the passage zones. And she said that there must have been small little herds or, you know, whatever. That means that these people were specifically looking for the red deer. And the antler from the red deer is in there. And, of course, the antler is associated with the annual cycle of the year. It's, uh, it's to do with the rotting, you know, and they, they, they shed the, the antler every year. So the antler is like the sun, like, this, the, like the midwinter and midsummer sunlight, you know. It, too, is marking the year. So I suspect that that's very much part of it. Probably an agricultural dimension, but, you know, it might even be more deep-rooted than that, Neil, I suspect. You know, it's something about their understanding of life and time and their place in the world, you know. Yeah, it's very interesting to think. So, Marissa, I think, you know, looking at that and looking at kind of traditions and beliefs and and things, I I think it's really marvellous now Every year around the winter solstice, people from the community of that part of Kilkenny and Tipperary gather together there at the site. And before COVID, you know, the, the numbers were getting quite large. There was more and more people coming along every single year. And it was a lovely event. Do you know, there'd be mince pies, there'd be a little bit of mulled wine. And, and you're often there yourself to give a bit of a talk about the, the site and such. And it's really nice atmosphere. 
do you think at this time of the year when when people are thinking about things like the solstice and they're thinking about celebrating uh this sort of event if you like do you think that's something in us that's gravitating towards perhaps older traditions or more natural traditions or do you think that's always been an element of christianity and catholicism that we perhaps lost for a little while and that now we're beginning to turn to again in in, in these days yeah and it's it's you're you're touching on very broad issues there neil and i think and yet you're asking a very direct question i think it is very much the case that um uh, I don't think um, the Irish have ever been too interested in dogma, you know. Um, we're a lot more interested in spirituality, in a sense. And um, the if you think even traditional Irish society, um, we're very comfortable, as many other societies are too, in believing, you know, in, in the, the sort of, you know, the Christian um, belief system, etc., and adhering to that, but at the same time, there is this other world, uh, you know, that was very strong in Irish society of the Tua de Danan and the um, the fairies were there somewhere, you know, playing hurling in the fields and um, you know associated with monuments, etc. In other words, there were these different spiritual worlds seemed to live quite comfortably, you know, side by side. There was no problem, and indeed. If you think of Irish society through penal times, um, that you know people were not getting, were not you know doing having the regular type of church services they would have today, that a lot of their uh, spirituality revolved around holy wells and so forth, uh, which has continued down in many ways. So this seems to have been part of society always, you know, and um, I think. Um, the same thing is happening today that people do have a, a spiritual hunger and how that finds um, expression will vary, I suppose, from generation to generation. Um, but I do think there is a spiritual hunger and I think that's what a lot of this has to do with. Um, and it is, of course, um, trying to find meaning in nature and obviously probably linked with the, in a sense, with the, with the, the green agendas of today as well, you know. Um, that is trying to um, find it, find some sort of meaning in life. And there is, as you know yourself, Neil, having been there, and anyone who has been at one of these sites, there is something extraordinary at, you know, to stand at these sites and to witness the rising sun and the setting sun, knowing that the tombs are aligned onto these and knowing that where we are standing at this particular moment, people have stood... 5,000 years ago, and we I think we're often trying to sort of, you know, find something in common with them almost, you know, what were they thinking about? What are we thinking about? What does it all mean? What does life mean? You know, um, we are just passing through, and yet all of these things are still there generation after generation. So I think you're quite right. I think um, these things are always there. I don't think they they exist as some sort of a competition to Christianity or uh, or, or even as a compliment. I think it's just part of life as we all are, Neil. I do. It's not a very theological answer, but that's the best I can do. It's an answer I I, I, I certainly share as well. I think it, it's just something in us, really. I think we're always striving for connection 
in one way or another. And perhaps this is a way of connecting with something bigger than ourselves. And um, it's so interesting, isn't it, to think about that sort of shared connection that you get so rarely with generations that went countless generations before in this case. Absolutely. Yeah. And sharing experience with that. So listen, thank you so much, Maurice. Uh, that, that was a fascinating chat. And um, I think I'm officially allowed to wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> now, we're getting close to the solstice. Anyway, that's thank okay. you very much, Neil. Happy Christmas as well to you. <laughs> thank you, Neil. Thanks, Neil. So that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology and I'd just like to thank Morris for all of his time and insights. I always love chatting to Morris and if you didn't have the opportunity to do so yet I do strongly recommend you listen to our New Grange in the Winter Solstice mini-series that we did around this time last year. You'll find it at the Amplify Archaeology section of our website abartaheritage.ie or if you scroll back through your, uh, all our episodes on your favourite podcast listing you'll find us there. As I said right at the beginning, we have a free itinerary map which leads you to some of our favourite and publicly accessible sites in the Lingon Valley. You can find that um, if you go to our episode page on abataheritage.ie. You'll find it in the show notes there. There's a link to it. If you sign up to our mailing list, we'll send it on to you straight away for free. Uh, And it's also included as part of our offering to our members of Tour. Tour is our new membership subscription service. A little bit like Netflix, if you like, for archaeology and history fans. What it has is lots of information on places to visit all around Ireland with um, itineraries that can give you a great day out, like the Lingon Valley one. We also have online courses, we have virtual tours with experts. We've got one coming up with uh, Dr. Damien Shields on Vinegar Hill, for example, uh, Isabel Bennett, who uh, is going to take us on a tour of the Dingle Peninsula that you'll be able to watch back and hear about all these fantastic sites and hidden stories that we find from the places. So there's lots there to find and you can find it on our website at abataheritage.ie forward slash tour. That's where you can sign up or you can even buy it as a gift. So if you've got somebody in your life that's equally interested in archaeology and history and discovering places off the beaten track in Ireland, I really hope you'd consider giving the gift of this if you're short of a last minute present. Otherwise, I want to thank you for listening. Thank you for staying with us all this year. And if you have enjoyed the podcast we've done, please do take a moment out just to leave us a review and to share us on social media with the hashtag Amplify Archaeology. It lets us know that we should carry on doing more, I suppose, that people do enjoy what we do. It's very important to us. Otherwise, I'm really looking forward to carry on next year. We've already got some really interesting episodes lined up and COVID willing, there might even be the odd live episode as well uh, where you can come and join us and we'll have a panel discussion. We'll see how that goes. But for now, I want to wish you a happy solstice and a very happy Christmas and New Year. Stay safe and I'll talk to you next year. Thank you. Goodbye.